So uh, John told me that you guys went through 2 John last week, and so you probably had a little bit of a background on who John is, and so I, I'm going to give you a little bit today too. It might be repetitive or, or redundant, but that's a good thing, isn't it? The more we hear things, the more we can retain them and, and uh, be able to call them back to mind. So John was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. He was part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. And those three got to go with Jesus on on really significant times and events in Jesus' ministry. When Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, where he unveiled his glory there, it was Peter and James and John that got to see that and experience it. When Jesus went and raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, it was the inner three, Peter, James, and John, that got to be there. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he went a little ways further, it was Peter, James, and John that went there with him. And so they were this significant trio that were with Jesus. It was John that was there at the cross when Jesus was crucified with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And if you remember, Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to John. He said, woman, behold your son. And to the disciple whom he loved, he said, behold your mother. And from that hour, John took Mary into his own home. And then it was John. He was one of the first ones to come to the empty tomb when Mary Magdalene came and, and told the disciples, he's not there. He's risen from the dead. It was Peter and John that ran to the tomb. It's recorded in the gospel of John. And John lets us know that John outran Peter to the tomb. And I don't know if because he had the liberty to do that in writing the gospel, but he let us know that he beat Peter there to the tomb. And so, um, again, just a, a, a special disciple. In Galatians chapter 2, he's referred to as one of the pillars in the early church. He's the only one of the 12 that did not die a martyr's death. Um, all of them died martyr's death, save Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, as we know, he committed suicide and killed himself. But of the other 11, John is the only one who did not die a martyr's death. His brother James was put to death by the sword of Herod Agrippa, recorded in Acts chapter 12. Peter, um, church history tells us, was crucified upside down. In fact, it's Tertullian that says that John was placed in a vat of boiling oil, but it had no effect on him. And so he was banished then to the island of Patmos where he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, this isn't going to kill you, then we're going to banish you to this island. But it's there that he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so John uh, goes down in history as one of the writers of the New Testament books. He wrote five of them. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote these three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he also wrote the book of Revelation. Now, as um, when somebody is interested in Christianity or becomes a new believer, oftentimes we'll point them to the Gospel of John. We'll, we'll say, here's a Bible, why don't you read the Gospel of John first? Because in it, John gives us the reason that he wrote it. He wrote it that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing you would have life in his name. And so that's kind of common. Maybe you've heard that before too. I was not raised in the church. I didn't know anything about Christianity until I was 18 years old. My mom and dad were good um, moral people, but they didn't know anything about Christianity either. I had one older brother, two years older, my brother Tom, 
And when he was 20 years old, so I was 18, somebody witnessed to him about the love of Jesus and he became a Christian. And for the next five years, he would tell me about Jesus and he was kind of forceful. He would take his Bible and beat me over the head with it, if you know what I mean. He would just say, Steve, you need to get saved or you're going to go to hell. That's the way he witnessed to me. And so for five years, I just stiff-armed him and just got away from him as far as I could. But the Lord was working in my heart, even in that kind of evangelism, and the seeds were being planted in my heart. And when I reached the age of about 23 years old, I realized that my life was going in a direction that was not going to end up good. And I, I just thought, you know, I, I'm open to Christianity now. I want to hear more about this. So my brother living up in the Pacific Northwest um, uh, called me on my birthday, and he said, hey, Steve, what do you want for your birthday? And I thought, well, I'm getting hungry for the word. So I said, why don't you send me a Bible? And he's been witnessing to me for five years now. And I've been rejecting him all the time. And it was just silent on the end of the phone, like I'm pulling his leg or something, you know. And uh, I said, no, seriously, send me a Bible. So he sends me a Bible. And he has a little sticky note on it that says, start in John. Okay, so it makes sense. That would be the place to start. So I'm thumbing through this book. And I come to 1 John. And if you've ever read 1 John, or if you remember it, it's a challenging book to read and to understand. And so I'm reading through it, and it's just confusing to me. And so I closed the book, and I just thought, I knew it. This Christianity stuff, you can't understand it. And I sat there disappointed because I was, I was open to what this was all about. And then I looked at the book, and I thought, you know, nobody starts a book at the end. You start a book in the beginning. So I opened the book up, the Bible, to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis. And you have to remember again, I knew nothing about the Bible. Never heard of Noah, never heard of the story of Daniel and the lion's den, never heard of Adam and Eve. And I start reading through, and God is just using his word in the book of Genesis, even going through the genealogies in chapter 5, to speak to my heart and draw me to himself. So I've come to realize that God can use any portion of the scripture because it is his word, and it's alive, and it's powerful. And so that's my story on how I came to the Lord. So we're going to be in 3 John here, and the content of 3 John here is John is writing to, a, to a, a fellow believer whom he loves desperately, a man named Gaius, a, a faithful Christian, a great example of what it means to be a Christian. And he's writing because there's an issue that's taking place in the church. How many of you know it's difficult when persecution comes from without? How many of you know it's devastating when division comes from within? When you get someone rising up within a church and it begins to bring division. It can be devastating for the church. And that's the issue that was happening here at the church that Gaius, this beloved disciple that John knew, was going to. It's a man named Diotrephes. And it says that he loved to be first. He loved to have the preeminence. He was an arrogant leader within the church, and he was creating division. And division has to be stopped because united as a church, we can stand, but divided we will fall. And so you have to be able to grab hold of that division and get it out. Because I think it's one of the greatest tools of the enemy is to pit one Christian against another and bring that divisiveness. Because Jesus said, they'll know you're Christians by, my, by your love for one another. And it's got to be that love that's really taking place. When the Apostle Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, he called 
for the elders of Ephesus, and he met them in Miletus, and he said in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. He said, people are going to come from without, but there's going to be those that are going to rise up from within. They're going to speak perverse or distorted things in order to draw people after themselves. Therefore, Paul writes to the elders at Ephesus, therefore, watch. Have the spiritual oversight to see those that are rising up, speaking false truths to draw people after themselves. And this is kind of what Diotrephes was like. And so John writes this letter to deal with this issue. So let's go ahead and read through the entire letter that's before us. Third John, beginning from the first verse, we read, The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. A short little letter that John wrote. In fact, Warren Wiersbe says in the Greek, it's the shortest in the New Testament. A short letter, John's desire was to be able to go and speak to them face to face. So he's keeping the letter short. Whether he was able to do that or not, we don't know. You know, back then, to travel the distance where John was at to where Gaius was, you know, it was a big deal back then. Today, we can go hundreds of miles, can't we, by jumping in a car. Or we can go thousands of miles by jumping in an airplane. But back then, it wasn't the case. He might not have ever made it to see Gaius. His desire was to do that. And so he writes this short letter hoping to come one day and see him face to face. I want to draw your attention to the way he started the letter. He started the letter with the word, the elder, referring to himself. 
The word elder is the Greek word presbyteros. We get our word Presbyterian from that. And it speaks of either an older man in age or it speaks of a spiritually mature man. For John, he was both. He was an older man and he also was a spiritually mature man. When we look in the New Testament of the spiritual leaders in the church, they're referred to as the presbyteros, the elders. They're referred to as the episkopos. We get our word episcopalian from that, the bishop or the overseer, or they're referred to as the pastor or the shepherd. And all three of these, the pastor, the elder, the overseer, are used interchangeably in the New Testament. And they're simply speaking about the spiritual overseers within the church. And perhaps John started his letter like that to say, look, my job, my responsibility is to have the spiritual oversight in the church. And there's an issue within this church. And so maybe he started it like that, much like the Apostle Paul would start his letters, some of his letters, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Maybe to put his credentials out there in the beginning as he's going to address some of this difficult stuff that's taking place then. He says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And undoubtedly Gaius was someone who was really special to John. He says in verse 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, I'm not going to use this as a springboard for the faith and prosperity doctrine. I don't know if many of you are familiar with that, but there is a doctrine that goes around that says God wants all of us to be healthy and wealthy. And to be honest with you, I don't see that in the scriptures. I see God using challenging times in our lives. I see him using disease. I see him using uh, the lack of resources to build within us a character that otherwise would not take place lest we go through those trials. And I think what John is doing here is simply saying, you are blessed spiritually, and I pray that you would be blessed in your day-to-day life as well. Uh, Kenneth Wiest says this in his commentary, Adolf Deisman in his monumental work, Light from the Ancient East, shows that these words are found frequently in letters of that day. And then he lists a number of letters from the first century that start out much like this. It's very similar to how we would write a letter. Dear so-and-so, I hope this letter finds you well. Or we would close the letter by saying, may God bless you. We're just wishing blessings upon their lives. And it seems that John is doing the same thing here. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health. Notice, just as your soul prospers. Gaius, you're doing wonderfully in your spiritual state. I pray that physically, And financially, you would do well as well. Maybe John knew that Gaius wasn't doing quite well. And so maybe that's the reason that he said that in the opening of his letter. He says in verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. At that time, there were Christian workers that would go out and they would go on preaching and teaching circuits, going into different cities and and preaching to the lost and teaching the saved, the word of God. And then they would come back and they would report to John and tell him, this is what happened when we went into this city. This is what happened when we went to this church. And when they went to this particular church, they were blessed by this man Gaius because Gaius was one that had the gift of hospitality that would open up his home to these traveling preachers. And at that time, 
people would travel around and, and there would be these inns that you could stay in, but they were very dirty. They were, they were very, uh, you know, not the kind of place, the safe place you would want to be. So those who had the gift of hospitality, it was huge for them to open up their homes and these people to be able to come in. And so these Christian workers were coming back and letting John know, this is, this is the kind of man that Gaius is. And so John here writes that, I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. What does that mean, to walk in the truth? Walk means to order your manner of life. It's the way you live. Well, what does it mean then to walk in the truth? What is the truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So to walk in the truth would be to live the way Jesus lived. Jesus also said when he was praying to his heavenly father for his disciples, sanctify them, set them apart by the truth. And then he said, your word is truth. And so to walk in the truth is to live according to the standards that we see within the word of God. And so as John is speaking to Gaius here, I'm greatly blessed that you walk in the truth, that you're living your life according to what the scriptures have to say. And then in verse four, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. No greater joy than that my children are living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned in the beginning, this verse has been very close to my wife's heart and my heart. That's our deepest joy. And it has been from the beginning for our kids. We wanted them to know the Lord, to love the Lord, and to live for the Lord. And you know, there's no guarantee that's going to happen, is it? Because your kids, they're free moral agents. They can make their own choices. They can do what they want to do. And we recognize that. But you'll have to realize that for a parent, there's nothing that you want more. For a Christian parent, there's nothing you want more for your kids than them to know the Lord, to love the Lord, and to walk with the Lord. And, you know, I know that there's some here, I'm sure, that have prodigals. Kids that you've raised up to know the word of God, and yet they've, they've made their own free choice to go their own way. And I know that must be heartbreaking for many. I just want to encourage you, two things really. Keep praying for them. I know you're praying for them. Keep praying for them because God does miraculous work through prayer. And also love them. Let them know that you love them. If you've raised them to know the truth, they already know the truth. We we have a couple in our church who raised their kids to know the Lord, and and both of them really aren't walking with the Lord. And every time they, they see them, they seem to go, you know, the Bible says you're supposed to be doing this and that. What you're doing is wrong. And I tell them, you know, that's not the best way to reach them because they already know the truth. It's just going to put a wall between you and them. Let them know that you love them. Not, not that you're in agreement with their lifestyle, but let them know that you love them and then just continue to pray for them because I believe God in his time, he could use this. He can, can he? He can use this to turn things around in their life and, and really do a, a profound work. For those of you who are younger and who have small children, I just want to encourage you to invest in your kids You know, you you might have heard it been said as far as priorities go, and I believe it to be true, that our number one priority should be our own personal relationship with the Lord. It's us and the Lord. That needs to be number one first. And number two, if you're married, 
Uh, the priority needs to be your relationship with your spouse. And then number three, your relationship with your children. And then number four, your career, your ministry. And then after that, hobbies and so forth. Because first of all, if your relationship is not right vertically, then it, it can't be right horizontally. If your relationship is not right with the Lord, then your other relationships are just going to be out of kilter. You know what I'm saying? When we've done marriage counseling, the first thing that we do is we ask people, how is your personal relationship with the Lord? And most often, it's not very good. And so we'll encourage the husband and we'll encourage the wife and say, you work on your devotional life. You work on your own personal time with the Lord. And what we've seen is when they do that, when each one works on their own personal relationship with the Lord, they get the vertical right, the horizontal is now working good. And they can have a marriage that's going to begin to be fruitful. Well, after that, it's our relationship with our children. You know, investing in your kids is so important. And it's, it's for both moms and dads, but I wanna speak a little bit to the dads. Because as dads, we get, in our careers, we get to a place where we can be so focused on that. You know, our wives, like in our family, uh, my wife homeschooled our kids from the very beginning. And, and she would just invest in them, time in them. And, and of course, I had, you know, my job, my ministry that I'm doing. And, and we, we can kind of deceive ourselves because we feel like we're, we're investing time in our kids because we're just around them a lot. But there's a difference between being around our kids and actually investing time in our kids. And it really came to light to me many years ago when Christmas time would come and the kids would get presents and it would say, you know, to Joanna or to Sarah from mom and dad. And they would open up the present and they'd look at it and they'd look at my wife and they'd go, thanks, mom. And that was it because they knew. Mom knew what they wanted. Mom had made the effort to go out and buy it. And mom is the one that signed from mom and dad to Joanna to it. So they knew that. And I realized she's got a relationship with our kids that's growing so wonderfully. And it's not with me. And I realized that the day was going to come when our kids were going to leave home. And I didn't want to have regret on that day. I didn't want that day to come and go, man, I just wish I would have spent more time with them. And so because of my wife, because of her example, I started making the effort to put them in that proper priority. The Lord first, then my relationship with my wife, and then my relationship with my kids, and just began to invest time with them and spend time with them. And we have a, a monthly date day with our kids. And so on the first Monday of the month, uh, let's say I'll take our oldest, Joanna, and we'll go have a date. We call it one-on-one -on -one time together. And then on the second Monday, my wife will take our second child, Sarah, and they'll go do something. And then on the third Monday, I'll take Michael. And then when the next month rolls around, it'll be my wife that'll take Joanna. And then I'll take Sarah. And then she'll take Michael. And we just do that that way. It's our one-on-one -on -one time. And we might go out and we might play tennis with my son. We might play golf. We might go on a hike and then just go to the local taco shop and split a burrito or something like that. We'll just spend time together and build a relationship. And some of you might say, well, well, I don't have much time to give, so we just have quality time together. You know, that quality time I've found only comes at certain points. So you're not guaranteed when you go and spend time, it's going to be quality time. So you want to have the quantity of time 
so that you'll have those slices of quality time with your kids. And as you do that, you're going to be building relationships with them. And then as they get older, that relationship is just going to flourish. It's a great payoff as you invest in your children and you come to the end and you can say, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. They can see what you're like. I think especially in a in a pastor's home, you know, our kids, they're PKs, they're pastor's kids. And a lot of times pastor's kids go astray. And, and a lot of times it's because they see a, a, a disconnect between the pastor on Sunday morning and the pastor during the week. They see a, a hypocrisy within the church, maybe um, everybody's smiling on Sunday morning, but then hearing when they get home, the husband and wife saying, well, you know what this one's doing and what that one's doing. We've tried to be so careful with our kids in being genuine before them and having ourselves real relationships with the Lord. And we're just human, obviously. All of us are. We're all sinners that are saved by grace. But we wanted them to see what it means to be a Christian because so oftentimes that is caught more than it's taught. We set the example and they can see, yeah, we're we're fallen sinners, and yeah, we make mistakes. And when we fail, we go to our kids and we say, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? I, I shouldn't have been short with you like that. And so they see what that looks like in hopes that, that they'll have an open heart for the Lord. And so I just wanna encourage you in that because it is so important. You are raising up the next generation. You are investing in them in the best way, again, for them, I think, to really know the Lord is for them to have a great relationship with you and seeing the Lord in your life. Amen? Amen. And so John here, as he writes to Gaius, maybe Gaius was, maybe Gaius was a, a person that John led to the Lord, a spiritual child, if you will. At the very least, John is his mentor. And now John commends Gaius in verse 5. He says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. As I mentioned, there would be Christian workers who would go out and they would come back and they would bring back word to John. And this one Gaius, they would say, Gaius is so faithful in what he does. It says in 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. What does God want you to do? Number one, he wants you to be faithful before him in whatever you're doing. Just be faithful before him. He says in the middle of verse six, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, again, remember the context here. These are traveling Christian workers. You've received them with hospitality. Now, if you send them out in a manner worthy of God, well, what does that look like? Well, what's going to be honoring to the Lord? These guys aren't working and making money. How are you going to send them forth? Are you going to give them the resources that they need so that they can do what? Verse 7, go forth for his namesake. Going forth, preaching the most important message that anyone could ever hear, and that's that Jesus loves them, and he died so that their sin could be forgiven, and so that they can go to heaven because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Send them forth in a manner that's worthy of God. We often use this verse as a, a verse to get behind missionaries. 
because missionaries are going out on the field and you know they're not going to go out and be able to make a living out there and so we want to send them out with resources and able to be able to do what they've been called to do and we have people that from time to time rise up in our church who have it on their heart to go out we had one young lady who wanted to go to the philippines to an orphanage there and so we put it before the church and people in the church very generous congregation where I'm at. They, they just go, yeah, we want to get behind it. All the resources that she needed came in, and she was able to go and minister to the orphans in the Philistine, in the Philistines, in the Philippines. When uh, my, my daughter, Joanna, uh, wanted to go to Kenya, and the opportunity arose, um, one of the board members came to me and said, Steve, make sure that that you bring Joanna before the church because, you know, thinking that because I'm the pastor, it's like, oh, I don't want to, you know, do that. He said, no, make sure you do it. You know, she loves the Lord. She wants to go serve the Lord. I said, okay. So we put it before the church and just said, Joanna has this opportunity to go serve in Kenya. And if you'd like to help her out, I want to tell you this. After three weeks, Joanna had to get up in front of the church and say, thank you for your giving. I've got more than enough. It was like Moses when he was building the tabernacle. I said, you guys, stop bringing it in. We've got too much here to build. And so that's the kind of, that's doing it in a manner worthy of God, isn't it? That's getting behind the work and sending them forth, saying, we're behind you. And as a dad, that really just blessed my heart to see the support that our congregation had for my daughter. And she's been such a blessing to us. And I know she'll be a blessing when she heads out there. And I do really appreciate your prayers for her because this is new territory for her. And, you know, it, it can be a challenging place no, no matter where you are in the world. But Africa, it's got that third world element to it. And so, you know, our, our concern is obviously for her. So we appreciate your prayers. And again, as he says here, send them forth on a manner worthy of God in verse 7 because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. The Gentiles were people who were not Jewish. And so the Jews knew the true God of Israel. The Gentiles were all the other nations who did not know the God of Israel. In this context, the Gentiles would be the ones who do not know God, that is, the unbelievers. And so these guys are going out for his name's sake, and they're not taking anything from people who are not a believer. It really should be the church, shouldn't it, that's supporting the missionary work, the church that's getting behind the people that are going out for his name's sake, preaching the gospel. He says in verse 8, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. We need to send them forth in a manner worthy of God, and we need to receive such, because again, they're do doing the work of the Lord. Jesus said in John 13, 20, most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. That's pretty huge, isn't it? So the one who's being sent out, you receive him, a worker in the ministry, you're actually receiving the Lord or receiving the Father. And so again, in a manner that's worthy of God sending forth and also supporting and receiving. He really sets this up, I think, to segue into what he's going to say. We ought to receive such in a way that's worthy of God. Then he says in verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Now, Diotrephes perhaps was an official in the church. The Strong's Concordance defines Diotrephes as a proud, arrogant, 
Christian. Unfortunately, we can have people in the church like that, can't we? You know, we're going to have two examples set before us this morning. We're going to have Gaius, who's a wonderful example of a very generous, hospitable, Bible-believing Christian. And we're going to have Diotrephes, a very arrogant, self-centered, proud leader within the church. And as leaders within the church, we have to be really careful that we don't make it about us, but that it is about Jesus. Diotrephes' name is made up of two Greek words, dios, which means of Zeus, and trepho, which means to nourish. And so his name means nourished by Zeus. Zeus was the chief god of the Greek pantheon. That's what his name means. And the interesting thing to find out, Kenneth Weiss mentions again in his commentary, that most Greeks, when they became Christians at their baptism, they took on a different name that would reflect more of, of who they were now in Christ. But Diotrephes did not do that. Diotrephes kept his same name, nourished by the greatest of the Greek gods. And he was a proud, again, arrogant man. It says that he loved to have the preeminence. He loved to be first. He loved to be the leader. And it's easy for that to happen within a church. You get someone who's got a position and they want to be, you know, the one that everybody's looking to. It's, it's our own human nature. Let me restate that. It's our own sinful nature that seeks to draw people after ourselves. And so we have to be careful of that. We have to be humble before the Lord. Because we don't want to follow after a guy like this. We don't want to be the, the problem, the one that's creating division within the church. Because of our pride and arrogance. John says this, he says at the end of verse 9, he does not receive us, verse 10, therefore if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, because division has to be dealt with. And it says that Diotrephes was prating against us with malicious words, and that means to speak blasphemous, really false accusations with things that are not true against John. Think about this, wrap your mind around this for a moment. Here, this guy, again, perhaps a leader in this church, he's not receiving John. Now, that'd be one thing if it was the, the pastor from the, the town next door that he's, I don't care what he has to say. Guys, this is John. This is one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, one of the inner three. And Diotrephes is like, ah, I don't care what he has to say. I'm not going to receive what he has to say to us. I, I can't get my mind around that. You know, what, what kind of arrogance would bring forth something like that? And then he goes on to say in the middle of verse 10, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, the traveling preachers, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. I mean, you see this kind of guy is not the kind of guy you want to emulate. This is the kind of guy that, again, is filled with pride. Not a good thing. He says in verse 11 here, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. We get our word mimic from that word imitate. Do not mimic what is evil. Don't let that be the example you're going to follow after, but rather imitate that which is good. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul said, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace 
will be with you. Now, how many of us could actually say, do you want to know what it's like to be a Christian? Well, just look at my life and do the same thing. How many of us could say, imitate me? And you know, when I say that in my church, a lot of them just kind of shake their heads and I go, I know, I know exactly what you mean, but, but shouldn't we all be like that? If we're truly followers of Christ, shouldn't we be living the life, walking with the Lord, walking in truth so that a new person in the fellowship, brand new Christian can look at your life and go, wow, you are the same Monday through Saturday as it is that I see you on Sunday morning. You know, one of the things that really struck me when I first went to church, like my brother, again, he was very zealous for the Lord. And I thought everybody was like that. I mean, my brother was like that 24-7. And when I went to church, I thought everybody else was like that. You can imagine my surprise. <clears throat> Excuse me, I worked in construction. You imagine my surprise when I would go to work Monday morning with some of these new brothers that I have, have met in church, and they're out there swearing on the construction site. And, and telling the off-color jokes, it just floored me, to be perfectly honest with you, because they, weren't, they really weren't walking in truth, were they? I mean, they were one way on Sunday morning, but then during the week, they were a completely different person. And so this is the key thing. We want to set the example. And I love what Paul said in the 1 Corinthians 11 verse. Imitate me, but then he said, just as I also imitate Christ. You don't just imitate every leader you see. You imitate what they're doing if they're imitating Jesus, if they're living for the Lord, then you go, yeah, that's what I want to be like too. I remember our founding pastor of the church that I pastor now, I remember being able to look to him and going, man, I want the same kind of evangelistic heart that he does, the same kind of consistency before the Lord that he does. And so briefly here, as we just close out the letter, in verse 12, he mentions Demetrius. Demetrius has a good testimony from all. And from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. Perhaps Demetrius was another, another one of these Christian workers who's traveling around. And, and John, perhaps some think that he's the one who carried the letter here and gave it to Gaius. And perhaps John is saying, look, Demetrius, he is a good, faithful witness. You can receive him. You can get behind him. And because he has a good testimony and the truth, the standards of God's word would be a testimony to his life as well. Finally, he closes it again. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you, our friends. Greet you. Greet the friends by name. Guys, as we have the opportunity... Let's let our light shine for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've come out today and you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to do that. For me, it was five years of putting my hand out and saying no thanks. I want to tell you, I'm so glad that God is patient and that God continued to be long-suffering towards me. Because I'm so thankful for the day when finally I said to my brother, why don't you send me a Bible? You know, I want to know this God that you have been telling me about. And I'll tell you what, it's not that my life has been trouble-free. In fact, some of the, in fact, the most difficult things that have ever happened to me have happened to me since I've been a Christian. But the wonderful thing about it is I've gone through those things, not alone, but with the Lord, sometimes carrying me through them. He'll always be with you. So I encourage you, if you've come out today and never put your trust in Jesus, call on his name today. 
Say, dear Lord, forgive me, the sinner, and come into my life and make me the man or the woman that you've always wanted me to be. And I guarantee you, you will never regret that. Amen? Amen. Why don't we pray? Father, thank you for the time we could spend in your word today. Thank you, Lord, that it is alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It exposes our hearts, Father, and it shows us where we're at. I pray today, Father, that there have been some that have been encouraged. I pray that there have been some if needed that have been convicted, oh God. I pray that you would help us be open and receptive before you, that we would be the men and women that you've always created us, destined us, really to be. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.